My guest today is Professor Jürgen Renn. Jürgen Renn is a director at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. The focus of his research is Structural Changes in Systems of Knowledge. The title of his recent book is The Evolution of Knowledge, Rethinking Science for the Anthropocene. We are going to discuss this book in today's program. Professor Jürgen Renn is with me on the phone line. Uh, Jürgen, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. I'm uh, happy and I'm actually proud to be with you tonight. Professor Jürgen Renn, uh, we are going to discuss uh, this fascinating history of uh, knowledge uh, that you present uh, in your book. However, before we discuss the history and evolution of knowledge, uh, let us discuss uh, this concept of Anthropocene that you present at the beginning of uh, uh, this book. You say that human activity has changed our planet with dramatic consequences and you suggest that we live uh, in a different uh, geological age. My question is, uh, what is Anthropocene? Uh, has it happened? Uh, and if so, when did it happen? Or if it has not happened, uh, when will it happen? Yeah, thank you very much for your question. So I didn't introduce the concept of the Anthropocene. Uh, it's discussed uh, by the geological community and it was uh, introduced uh, to a broader public for the first time uh, in the year 2000 by the uh, Nobel Prize uh, winning uh, chemist Paul Krutzen, actually also a researcher at the Max Planck Society. He was at a conference in Mexico City and had the feeling when people talked about the Holocene, uh, an epoch in, in Earth history, uh, in which uh, human cultures began to flourish, that people are kind of underestimating the role of the uh, human impact on a planetary scale. And so he searched for a different term and was hesitating while he was speaking, while he was giving his lecture, and then said, actually, I think we're living in the Anthropocene. This comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man. So it's the age uh, in which men have a geological impact on the planet. Now, it had turned out that others have used the concept already before him, but he definitely made it popular uh, to a broader audience. And since then, geologists have uh, taken up the challenge uh, and have tried to find stratigraphic evidence for the existence of such uh, a new epoch in Earth history. And th there's been a long discussion since then on when the Anthropocene has started and whether actually it has started already. And uh, some have argued for an early Anthropocene uh, connected with the Neolithic uh, Revolution, the period in which uh, uh, humans began to domesticate uh, plants and animals. There were even others who went before that and said even the use of fire has already changed landscapes. Now, Kutzen uh, has had in mind when he proposed the term in 2000 that it was the Industrial uh, Revolution and that it was in particular, uh, you know, the, the change of the Earth's climate, uh, uh, the uh, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, the, the rising temperatures as a consequence of that, that, that marked this. But then people 
started to take this really seriously on a stratigraphic level. And stratigraphy is a very old uh, geological subdiscipline, and it is regulated by, uh, uh, by, by bodies, by international bodies, and it has very strict criteria for when you can say that uh, a new period in the in the timeline of of Earth's history has started, and currently uh, the inclination and and some preliminary uh, discussions and and decisions by those bodies uh, indicate that uh, the Anthropocene can be dated to the period right after the Second World War. Uh, in uh, in a period that uh, historians now call the Great Acceleration, because if you look at some of the parameters of the Earth system, I men mentioned already the greenhouse gas uh, concentrations, but also if you look at some parameters of the uh, of, of global society, uh, uh, the uh, the increase of traffic, the use of resources, then you see steep rises just after the Second World War in almost all of these parameters and simultaneously in the Earth uh, parameters, probably speaking, and in the parameters uh, that have a socioeconomic uh, meaning. And uh, also the stratigraphic evidence now seems to point to a beginning of the Anthropocene in the middle of the 20th century. You know, think, for instance, of the uh, remnants of the uh, uh, of the first uh, nuclear explosions, uh, some of that material is still in in, uh, in the atmosphere, and it can be found in uh, stratigraphic uh, 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 layers. And so there are many indications that point that the Anthropocene really has started there. But so far, I have given you an indication of sort of the geological impact. But the Anthropocene uh, is a concept that has had, meanwhile, a career in many disciplines. And I think the deepest meaning that it has, it shows that humans have become a geological force. Humanity is changing the planet in a way that may eventually undermine uh, our own living conditions. And so this is a con point of convergence between geological history and human history. And that's really, I mean, it's fascinating. It's a bit threatening, I have to admit, but it's also a fascinating subject because Humans are exploiting geological time in the sense that they're using fossil fuels, which have accumulated over millions of years, and they are burning these these uh, resources, the fossil resources, within within decades. But then they are leaving also changes like the uh, like the changes in the in the atmosphere that will have an impact. Uh, in, in thousands of years to come, even if we stop burning fossil fuels right now, uh, the effects will remain for a very long time. And so it's really true that uh, humans are changing uh, the planet and uh, the Anthropocene captures all those changes and it captures the, the geological changes, but it captures also uh, the, the environmental conditions which we as humans need for our cultures to flourish. Thank you very much uh, for uh, this uh, thorough uh, description of uh, uh, this concept of Anthropocene. Uh, we will come back to this concept again before we finish our conversation. Uh, moving on to questions uh, relevant to the history and evolution of knowledge, let me ask this. At the beginning of the book, uh, you try to define science and knowledge separately. 
what is science and what is uh, knowledge uh, in your view these are of course challenging questions and as we both know and as our listeners also know these are questions that have occupied uh, philosophers historians uh, yeah n- not just in the recent decades but for hundreds uh, of years you know going back to the ancient philosophers uh, and for the purposes of my book i have tried to propose definitions that uh, allow us to speak of science not when just dealing with recent science but to help uh, us find a concept of science and of knowledge uh, that helps uh, uh, that help us to understand the long term history of humanity that is we want to be able to speak of science in different cultures we want to speak of uh, science and knowledge in different historical periods and to be able to relate them to each other without becoming either anachronistic in the sense of just applying our modern concepts to past periods nor by uh, being completely relativist and saying you know when in the middle ages they thought astrology was a science then that was their concept of science but it's not our concept so one has to find a kind of middle ground uh, between the, those two extremes to be anachronistic and just have a modern perspective and a completely as the historians say a historistic uh, position where one just takes the perspective of the respective historical actors and so uh, my proposal has been uh, to speak of knowledge and let me start with knowledge as a human potential to uh, to solve problems to solve problems by acting and to mentally anticipate the, uh, these actions so uh, knowledge is part of the human capacity for uh, uh, for learning and uh, it is uh, of course related to the uh, given in specific circumstances historical or cultural circumstances given means of acting and means of thinking and that makes it in a sense historically relative but it also gives us a general concept that is applicable to all kinds of periods and all kinds of uh, cultural context because it's always about uh, the capacity of humans to uh, to solve problems and to anticipate uh, and to to anticipate action so knowledge is in a way a, a form of codified experience and uh, it has and this is now an important point for the uh, argument in the book it is not just the individual capacity uh, but it has also three two other dimensions it has uh, in total three dimensions one is the cognitive dimension what i said to mentally anticipate uh, actions uh, the second is the social dimension because uh, societies share knowledge we live in groups we live in societies and knowledge is something that is being uh, exchanged among individuals that a society needs not just to produce but also to share to cultivate uh, to store and here comes the third important dimension knowledge has a material dimension as well it has the the cognitive it has the social and it has the material dimension and the material dimension is uh, related to when we speak when we write when we store data we always need material embodiments or representations of knowledge only in this way can we uh, transmit knowledge from generation to generation or transmit knowledge over uh, over great distances and 
knowledge actually depends very much on the forms available for its representation. Without writing, my conditions for storing uh, and sharing knowledge are completely different than uh, when I have uh, when I have writing or I have even electronic means of data storage. And so the history of, of knowledge can only be written if I include a history of the forms of material representations of knowledge. And also what I said about the social dimension, about the possibilities to, to share knowledge, to distribute knowledge, of course, these also very much depend on these material, external, as we call them, representations of knowledge. And uh, you asked me a big question, so I have to take a bit of time to answer it. Uh, so I talked uh, mainly now about knowledge. So how is science related to knowledge? Now, you know, it's, uh, it's a difficult and much discussed question uh, when science started, what one can classify as science. And philosophers of science have made uh, a major effort and had many discussions about uh, the criteria, how to distinguish science from uh, yeah, from beliefs, from uh, you know stories. When when does science emerge in history? These are extremely difficult uh, questions. And uh, philosophers have actually contributed. I think, for instance, of Sir Karl Popper, who thinks that the uh, falsification, the possibility to uh, uh, to falsify a statement uh, empirically, is a very important criterion. Uh, of uh, a true scientific state of of a, of a scientific statement that uh, uh, and, and other proposals have been made along a similar line that is to find abstract general criteria for when a statement is scientific, whether true or, or not, but whether it can be called a scientific statement. As a matter of fact, historians of science have found that all of these very abstract general dis definitions are somehow flawed. It's very difficult to uh, to to apply such statements generally, because usually a, a theory always contains some statements that are not directly verifiable or falsifiable uh, by empirical uh, evidence. So it's really hard to give an abstract definition of science. So here's my solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. My solution to the problem is that uh, in the moment that you consider science not just as on an abstract level of ideas or, or theories, but in the moment that you consider science as a societal activity, you can distinguish between societal activities that are directed at the production of knowledge for its own sake. And that is what I call science in a given culture. And of course, there are diff very different forms in human history uh, that such an activity takes. but. Uh, when the purpose is the production of knowledge, and the purpose is not, uh, you know, to pursue another aim to uh, uh, as, a, as a as a primary goal, then I would speak of knowledge. And it's interesting that uh, in in the historical record, this kind of activity emerges only once you have a state of uh, uh, once you have a state in which. Uh, physical labor and intellectual labor are divided. Once you have a group of people that can dedicate their activities just to intellectual work. So think of the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, of Egypt, or in China or in India, when you have groups of people that have uh, the leisure to dedicate themselves to 
to intellectual tasks, or not only the leisure, but they have the uh, uh, they have administrative functions. They are priests, and so uh, they can they have the possibility of producing uh, intellectual work. Now, of course, this intellectual work t- takes very different forms, but it is a form of science in the moment when it has, as I said, this purpose of producing knowledge primarily. Let me go a little bit more into a, into an example that illustrates how these different forms of knowledge can be uh, can be distinguished. So, in the in some of the ancient societies, you had groups of people with uh, administrative tasks, for instance, uh, or in particular, uh, distributing. Uh, the resources in a society. So they were administrators. And for instance, in Mesopotamia or in Egypt, you had administrators that uh, used uh, accounting techniques and later writing in order to pursue these administrative activities. Now, once you have such a task in a society, you have teach, to teach people. You have to institutionalize this. You have to educate people to make them able to do this. And then you create a teaching institution, you create what we would call a school, and in the school, uh, you, you, ta- you, you teach the methods. And in the moment that you teach the methods, you have already uh, pursued a step of separation between the actual practical activity and the tools that you need for the activity, the intellectual tools. You, you, you learn to write, you learn uh, to, uh, to do some accounting, but you don't do it in an immediate practical context, but uh, you do it in a in a in a sheltered space, so to say, and and that is the place where people then start to explore these means for doing this kind of planning or administrative work, and this exploration then becomes uh, a purpose in its own sake, and this is when you see, for instance, in Babylonia, uh, the emergence of science in the sense of people are not just trying to solve administrative problems, not just you know doing a service to their rulers, but they are exploring these means of doing this intellectual labor for its own sake. They are now doing calculations that have no practical sense. And this is what I would call science, the exploration of the given, historically given means for doing intellectual labor for the production of, of knowledge. And what, what this helps us to do is you can now see science at work where, according to a, an abstract criterion, you would never see it at work. For instance, the Babylonians, they didn't have theorems like we are used to in, uh, in modern science. And we know that this is a tradition going back to, to, the, to Greek antiquity, where you have this so-called deductive structure. You have theorems and you have proofs and you have all these formalities of science, but you have uh, forms of scientific activity, for instance, in, in China, in the famous ancient text of uh, mathematics in China, or in India, or in, in Mesopotamia, that don't take this form. Yet when you do a, a more comprehensive uh, social analysis of the forms of activities, the institutionalized forms of activities, you can see that see what this is actually constituting is science in the sense of a societal activity dedicated to the production of knowledge. Now, this was a long statement. Uh, let me just add one more thing to this uh, story. Uh, so you can, you can see that science, when it historically emerged, was a kind of virtuoso activity on the side. It didn't play a central role. Uh, 
for uh, for the societies. Yes, yes, the teaching played a central role. People had to do their administrative work. Their, their you know, the it was the knowledge for for the ruling classes, and that had to be produced. But uh, this was this was uh, this was a virtuoso activity on the side. It was like uh, like composing poetry, uh, and it took a long, long time historically before science got into a more central, more elementary, more significant role for societal development. And that didn't did mostly not happen before the European Renaissance, before the 15th and 16th century. Only then, and of course, uh, very uh, forcefully so, did science take this more productive role in capitalist societies where it became you know, a direct part of uh, of innovation, of of the innovation of of machinery, of products, where it became a, a, a productive force, so to say. And so you, you see this incredible asynchronicity of the uh, of the history of science and and human history. Uh, so science started much much earlier as an aside, as a marginal activity before becoming central. And I would say, if for a moment I may come back to the issue of the Anthropocene, science today has now become essential in many ways to our, uh, uh, to our world. So, uh, and I, you know, maybe we go into this a bit, bit later, but uh, I see here a momentous change in the role that science assumes in human history from a marginal virtuoso activity in the beginning to something that has a growing significance also for the economy, to something that is now shaping the conditions for our survival on a planetary level. You outline uh, two factors uh, that you suggest are uh, fundamental to the origin and uh, emergence of knowledge. Uh, these two factors are abstraction and external representation of knowledge through language and writing. Uh, you have already touched upon uh, the importance of our ability to represent knowledge externally. Talk to us about the power of abstraction uh, that has enabled us to create knowledge. Yes, that's a very important uh, aspect of knowledge and it's also one that has been uh, very much discussed. Uh, so how does abstraction come about? And, uh, you know, just to illustrate the, the importance of the point, uh, the, uh, you know, if you look at mathematical concepts, the concepts of numbers or a more, more specific concept like prime numbers or geometry, uh, you know, does this, is this, uh, this knowledge seems to be very, very abstract in the sense that it is applicable to, uh, an infinite number of concrete experiences. And, you know, people like Carl Sagan even thought, you know, this is the way to communicate with aliens, with extraterrestrials, because that will be one universal language, because it's so abstract that it is, you know, no matter whether, uh, you know, what the aliens look like on what planet they live, they will be able, they must be able to understand the mathematics. So, first of all, is this true or not? Is one question. And then, yes, there is, of course, what, however you conceive abstractness, there is this, you know, special quality that some of our concepts have, that they seem to be also uh, incredibly stable. Yes, we talk about changing concepts in science all the time. Science is about innovations, also of concepts. 
But on the other hand, there are some very general concepts that stay with us, like some of the mathematical concepts uh, that I've mentioned. So historians have wondered how they come about. And uh, before the historians, of course, philosophers have uh, wondered how they come about. Uh, you know, let me not go through all, <laughs> through all the philosophical answers to these questions. One was by Plato, who thought, you know, the, there is an uh, there's a world of ideas, a world beyond us, in which uh, all those uh, you know abstract ideas live, and our uh, real world is just an image, basically, of this world of ideas. And you know we are sort of a uh, a bad copy of this world uh, of ideas. Uh, people like Kant, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, have thought the abstraction is really a product of the human mind. It's a mixture of the experiences which deliver you empirical material and the structures imposed by human thinking that order the material. It's like a, the image of a machinery that sort of digests the experiences and turns them into, uh, uh, you know, into, into scientific uh, uh, assertions, into scientific statements, giving them structure logically, mathematically, and so on. And uh, then, you know, people have started to study the emergence of abstraction also as part of not just philosophical discussions, but uh, scientific investigation. And in my view, one of the, the pioneers of these more empirically uh, conceived investigations of abstraction is the uh, Swiss uh, developmental psychologist uh, Jean Piaget, because he has studied the emergence of abstract concepts in children. And again, you, you might imagine that, you know, various accounts for how children come up, they may just take it over from the environment, from, from their parents, from their, so from their social environment. I mean, they may, uh, have it already as innate structures anchored in the human brain. Or, and that is Piaget's answer, it's, something that unfolds when children explore the world through their own actions. So according to Piaget, uh, abstraction is very much related to the, uh, uh, to, to the reflection that uh, young children, that children pursue when they, uh, uh, when they perform actions. And he has focused on some very simple actions namely actions that are responsible for such for basic concepts as we find them in mathematics or in in elementary physics what is an object can we talk when can we talk about the stability of an object but for me one of the most fascinating uh, experiments by Jean Piaget is one that deals with the ordering of lengths uh, ordering of sticks of different lengths so imagine you have uh, you know a heap of sticks all have different lengths, and you are asked to uh, 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 you ask a child to order them uh, according to a smaller or greater lengths. And he has observed now that very young children compare uh, pairs of these sticks, and uh, when they take uh, one pair and a third pair, they uh, compare the new stick, the third stick both with the smaller and the larger stick of the first pair without realizing that it would be sufficient to establish, for instance, that the third stick is larger than the larger one of the, uh, of the, of the pair 
uh, and that by inference you can uh, you can conclude it must uh, also be larger than the smaller one. So this is a relation which is called the transitivity of the length relation that is apparently not anchored in the brain in the brain, but that is something that children build up in their experiences in their individual development through the reflection on their own actions. But once they have the structure, uh, they are very quickly able to apply it to all kinds of problems, also completely new problems. So in other words, these abstract structures are built up from experience, are built up, up by reflections on action. Uh, and uh, so he gives a psychological account of, of the emergence of these, uh, of these structures. It's an interaction of the thinking with the external world. It's neither just in the external world nor just in the thinking. It's about the interaction through the interventions through, through the physical action. Now, but this raises another problem, namely the problem are the structures that thus emerge, are they universal structures or are they different in different cultural contexts? Now, that's a question that Piaget actually hasn't asked himself so profoundly as I'm posing it here. And historians of science have found and a comparative psychologists have found that uh, actually there is a difference. In some structures, you know, the world is physically the same for all of us. So some of these structures, for instance, the structure that I just showed, you know, the comparison of length, that it has a transitive structure. If B is uh, larger than A and C is larger than B, then C is also larger than A. That's universal for sure. But uh, other structures are not. And... Uh, so there might be, and, and this has huge consequences for the history of science, because it might mean, or it, it does mean, it does imply that some of the uh, some of the abstract concepts have emerged under very specific circumstances and are dependent in a way on these circumstances, and they seem universal to us, but they are not. And there are famous examples in the history of science. Einstein famously showed us that Newton's concept of space and time, which people had taken for granted for centuries, and Kant even wanted to build into this you know, machinery for thinking, because he thought they are so universal, they must be anchored in the human mind, that they are actually not universal. That uh, uh, relativity theory shows that space and time form a unity, that uh, they are related to gravitation, yeah. and all of that seems uh, conceivable only when you admit that even such abstract and universal uh, structures as these concepts of space and time can change. And now you see what I've been trying to do. I have to try, I've tried to explain two things at the same time that are seemingly contradictory. Namely, on the one hand, the stability of these concepts. You know, why can concepts, why don't they change all the time? Why, they, why do they organize a body of knowledge in a stable way for centuries? And yet, why are they changeable? And uh, this concept that abstractions are the result of reflections on human actions is, uh, helps us to explain this seemingly paradoxical fact because the actions that we pursue are, of course, always concrete, socially, materially determined actions in concrete historical contexts. So we shouldn't wonder uh, that our actions can give rise to new concepts uh, once the conditions for these actions change. 
if I do my measurements now with uh, in a context in which a theory like electrodynamics uh, exists, I can get to new concepts of space and time as Einstein did, whereas Newton didn't know anything about electricity and magnetism. So in a new environment, uh, my actions can give rise to new concepts. And so the concepts are not once and for all given. They are not universal. They can change with history. And yet they are very stable because behind them is all the experience that we have reached before we, uh, we came to this new stage. Well, uh, this uh, nicely brings us uh, to my next uh, question. Uh, what are the main factors uh, that lead uh, to changes uh, in knowledge structures? How knowledge structures change uh, and evolve? Yes, uh, th this is again, uh, you know, you have pinpointed all these, you know, crucial and deep and difficult points that I have wrestled with myself. Uh, with myself. And, uh, you know, and just as there were so many, you know, positions and, and points of view on issues such as knowledge and science, there were, there was a, there's of course a century old discussion on how science changes. Now, ideally, you might say science shouldn't change at all because science, science should be the collection of true statements. So how can it change at all? I just should add more and more true statements. But then people like Thomas Kuhn have realized, no, it's not just, you know, you sort out the false statements and you substitute them by true statements. It's the entire architecture of knowledge that changes. If you go, you know, from, uh, from uh, an astronomy in which the Earth is at the center to Copernican astronomy, you don't just position, you know, the sun in a different place and the earth in a different place, you have to understand, you have to conceive your entire physical world from a new perspective. Now, all of a sudden, you have to explain, if the earth moves, why don't people, uh, why don't people and objects just don't fly away from it? Why don't we feel that movement? And, and so, with, you know, there are deep changes, and the changes are not just, uh, you know, individual changes of individual statements, but they are holistic, as we say. They concern the entire edifice of a scientific construction. And so that, again, is the, it's actually a similar problem to the one that I tried to describe before. You have to always describe, uh, account for two things that are seemingly con uh, contradictory. One is, why is science so reliable? Why is it so stable? Why it is? Uh, why does it uh, not change with every new, you know, experience that I have? In principle, you know, I drop a body, uh, and I'm sure the law of fall applies to it. And yet, you know, if this is all just empirical knowledge, I might think, you know, I drop my pen and I find a, a deviation from the law of fall and have to revise the law of fall. But that's apparently not how science works. The law of fall found by Galileo uh, 400 years ago is still the same law today. So there is this incredible stability. But on the other hand, you get these big changes from uh, uh, the, the geocentric world picture to the heliocentric world picture, from Newton to Einstein, you know, the same in chemistry, the same in biology. So one has to really account for how these changes operate. And, you know, and I have wrestled with this problem. My account is you cannot uh, solve this problem 
if you don't take into account that, uh, you know, however new the next scientific theory may appear, the next world picture may may appear, it always takes over substantial elements of the old worldview. It's even true for Copernicus, who made this spectacular revolution, uh, placing the sun in the center of the universe instead of the earth. Because if you look at what he did, you know, the calculations that he did, he used the tools that the traditional Greek and Arabic astronomy had accumulated over centuries. That's how he did his calculations. The external representation, if you want, the means of producing knowledge were the same. He used the same tools in order to shuffle around. Uh, he even used this, uh, some of the same observations that people had done. So these novelties are very often primarily a reshuffling of existing knowledge, a reorganization rather than a radical, radically new beginning. And if you're a historian of science and you want to understand how the evolution of knowledge works, you have to understand how this reorganization uh, uh, functions. Now, that's a very difficult process that I've analyzed for a couple of such major scientific changes. And you can find some, you know, general, not rules, I would call them, you find typical features and how these, how these things happened. And they are almost always connected to intrinsic problems uh, uh, that, uh, that a theory, when applied to a new field of experience, uh, shows, and then it proliferates uh, possibilities, and it shows, uh, uh, it shows new conceptual possibilities that then may serve as and anchor it for this reorganization that I, uh, that I tried to describe. This is a bit, uh, you know, one has to look at the, at the different cases because they don't all happen along the same pattern. It's not a simple scheme like Kuhn had. There's a crisis. There's normal science. There's a crisis. There's a paradigm ch change, and you get a scientific revolution. This is like a cooking recipe, but it doesn't generally work along the same recipe. Uh, let us uh, move on to the next topic that you discuss uh, in detail in your book. Uh, and I find this topic very interesting that uh, how knowledge spreads. And it is very interesting to note that when you discuss uh, that how knowledge spreads, you talk about various networks that existed in various shapes and forms throughout human history. Now, most of us are familiar with networks that exist uh, in this uh, digital age and uh, in this uh, age of internet and uh, digital connectivity. Uh, but you talk about networks that even existed in ancient times. Uh, please talk to us about these networks that were enabling mechanisms for spreading knowledge. Yeah, thank you, Vasim, for this question. Now. You know, I think, first of all, network, network theory, sociological network theory is a, is a pretty generic tool that you can apply to all kinds of human interaction. And uh, I try to apply it also to knowledge interactions because uh, knowledge is carried between uh, people. It uh, is carried with people or with external representations. Uh, but networks, and this is the strength, I think, of network analysis, they show you more than when you follow as a historian just an individual case of transmission. They have a topology, they have a structure, and you can learn a lot from the structure. 
So you you wanted examples. I give you I give you some examples. A wonderful example is uh, the network that was uh, you know in the Hellenistic period uh, organized around the famous library of Alexandria. You know the museum in Alexandria because uh, Alexandria they tried to build one of the world's largest uh, libraries then, and the way to do it was that they asked every merchant that. Uh, uh, that anchored in the town, and uh, and if the ship had any scrolls, any 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 manuscripts, that they uh, uh, that they would store it in the library and uh, give them a merchant a copy back. And so they 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 had a you know their their mercantile network, their their, their commercial network, was uh, you know transformed in this way into a knowledge network, and. Uh, and they also searched for other uh, for, for other books where in in the entire uh, known world and collected them and but that would be just a trivial collection but they did much more they they tried to synthesize the knowledge and we know that in this period uh, in the Hellenistic period some of the great synthetic works were written the famous one of the famous works is for instance Ptolemy's uh, Book on astronomy, where uh, where he could, and, or similarly his his work on geography, so where you know knowledge was brought together, but also received a new form, and from there spread again, and in this way you had uh, you know the the network acted in a transformative way. It was not just an uh, addition of individual pieces of knowledge; it was the basis for creating. A new form, a more synthetic form of knowledge that then spread in the same area, and you see this interaction of, you know, social networks and intellectual networks and representational networks. The representational network, I mean, just the collection of artifacts, the scrolls, the manuscripts. You see that how these, you know, different dimensions. It's again the three dimensions of knowledge: the intellectual, the social, and the material dimension of knowledge. How they interact in giving. Uh, rise to to novelties and to new insights. Another example from a later period in the Middle Ages is the so-called treatise on the sphere, which is nothing else but an elementary book on astronomy and geography that emerged in the Middle Ages and was then taken as an ancient book, but uh, it was just in the Middle Ages. And that book was uh, copied amended, that is, you know, it received commentaries with every new edition. And you can follow the network of the spread of this treatise across Europe for centuries. It was probably, next to the Bible, the best-selling book of the time, but it was, so to say, a moving target. It changed with every edition, with every commentary, and thus acted as a kind of seed crystal for the accumulation of new knowledge. For instance, about the great Voyages of discovery uh, to the southern hemisphere that was then added as a commentary, and then the book that was, uh, for instance, you know, amended in this way in Lisbon, you know, uh, went uh, went to Paris where a new edition was produced, and from Paris, which was a great hub because of its university at the time, then spread to the entire uh, medieval world. And in this way, you know, you can see there was a network of publishers who also were in contact with each other. You know, there was a, a network of universities, there was a network of, you know, the libraries that stored the treaties, 
And within these networks, you see an enrichment of knowledge. And uh, the network was, uh, in a way, the mechanism by which the new knowledge that then uh, distributed this geographical and astronomical knowledge was became a common property of the European society. And by the early modern time, astronomy, geography was a common, uh, was a shared knowledge, a broadly shared knowledge. And had it not been for such broadly shared knowledge, something like the Copernican revolution wouldn't have its, uh, its impact on the entire world picture. It would have been, you know, a correction of an astronomical detail. But now it became a challenge to an entire broadly established worldview, of course, also adopted by the church with its own networks. So the networks are the mechanism by which uh, a society shares its knowledge, creates a canonized forms of knowledge, and by which knowledge is enriched. And, uh, and the networks, these networks, the intellectual networks, have the specific property that people know about them. It's not that this happens just uh, behind their backs, but people can actively participate, can realize that others uh, are contributing to this. And so they have a self-organizing property, which I personally find really uh, fascinating. So uh, they are, uh, you know, they, they are kind of a matrix for emergent phenomena. And, and there are many examples in the history of science where, you know, people just, you know, accidentally connect the, uh, to each other, but then produce something new together that then acts as a strengthening of this network character. Perhaps uh, we can then extrapolate uh, this uh, spreading of knowledge through various networks uh, to the development of uh, institutions, uh, universities and uh, specialized uh, disciplines such as medicine, physics, chemistry, various engineerings, uh, up to the development of modern uh, specializations uh, such as uh, computer science. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, I think if you ask yourself how such, uh, you know, forms like the disciplines emerged, how, uh, you know, new areas of knowledge emerged, you see there are always, uh, again, the three dimensions at work. This is a discipline, is a social uh, organization, there's a group of people who are specialists of a given discipline, it's, uh, it can be intellectually described by a core set of concepts, tools, and methods. And of course, it has its, uh, its characteristic tools, its materials tools, its apparatus, and so on. But if you want to understand how it lives, how it spreads, and how it changes, you have to take into account that in each of these dimensions, you have networks. You have exchanges. For instance, you know, you had great changes once the dynamics of the network changed. Uh, in science, say, after the Second World War, when you had the postdocs that were traveling from one university to the other, together with their preprints, also a new quality, uh, in this case of the external representation, which created new forms of exchanging knowledge and of connecting different nodes in the network to each other. So we can see this network activity, again, it's not a universal thing, it's something that happens in different forms at different times, but it's always uh, an engine of a, of, a, of a dynamics of innovation. And uh, if you really want to understand it, we have to take into account these three dimensions of the network, the epistemic, the intellectual, the social dimensions, and the material dimensions of it. 
Professor Jürgen Ren, uh, we are discussing your book, uh, The Evolution of Knowledge, Rethinking Science for the Anthropocene. Uh, this is a thorough book. Uh, it discusses the uh, history and evolution of knowledge in great detail. Uh, it contains large number of case studies, references. And an important point is that uh, this book is different when compared to many other history of science books. Uh, your approach is uh, different. Yes, it is. And uh, there is one simple uh, explanation for that. This book is based on uh, not just my individual work, it's based on a uh, on a team work of research uh, that has extended over more than 20 years at the Max Planck Institute and together with its international community. There is a tendency in our field, uh, you know, to make your career by writing uh, a monographic study, by publishing a book that should be highly individualistic. That should be a high should, should have a high profile and just representing your individual uh, position. And the only way to do this realistically is that you uh, you know specialize and dedicate a, a large time to just one subject. Now, what we have done at the institute for all these years is we have tried to solve some of these big or solve or contribute to solving some of the the big questions that you that we have been discussing in this. Uh, conversation so far by, you know, working together on different aspects, on different examples, but always with some basic theoretical questions in mind. So we neither thought that, you know, the uh, the results should come from just adding individual uh, studies randomly, nor from having uh, a given scheme and just filling out uh, uh with details like sometimes philosophers have done in the past. They use the history of science as a quarry to just, you know, find evidence for their own theory, uh, for their own theories. What we have tried to do instead is we have worked both at the theoretical level and at the empirical level in a coordinated fashion. So there's one, the teamwork uh, aspect to it, and there is second, this kind of interplay between detailed historical studies, you know, of Chinese science, of uh, ancient science, of very modern science, and uh, a constant work also on possible theoretical approaches. I mentioned some of them, cognitive science, cognitive psychology in the tradition of Piaget, uh, network theory uh, from, from sociology. Uh, so very different approaches that we try to bind together, but not to impose it uh, from above, so to say, as an abstract uh, uh, form on the on the on the historical details, but trying to use it as a heuristic uh, tool in order to find, yeah, to find an answer to the real big question, namely, what role does knowledge play in cultural evolution? And that is eventually what the book wants to contribute to. It wants to contribute to an understanding of cultural evolution. And knowledge uh, leads. Uh to the development of technologies and uh, new approaches uh, of conducting uh, various human activities. Uh, you make an important observation that human activities have changed our planet. Uh, a large part of Earth's uh, surface uh, has been transformed. Uh, oceans are being acidified. Uh, agricultural land uh, is, is being degraded and uh, 
you say that a new uh, geological era of Anthropocene is upon us. So, uh, how does your research inform us uh, that uh, how should we manage and perhaps uh, reverse these damages uh, caused uh, by human activities? Yeah, thank you very much for this uh, very important question. Uh, so, first of all, you know, we wouldn't have had that impact without the knowledge, in particular without the scientific knowledge. Uh, you know, what what we have done to this planet is, is I would say, not primarily the fault of science, but it's certainly uh, the co-responsibility of science. Now, uh, to, to give a complete picture, science very early on has also warned against some of the negative consequences of our in interventions. You know, if you think of a figure like Alexander von Humboldt or others, you know, or, or even even earlier uh, figures like before, uh, they have very early warned that, you know, the, this huge impact that uh, industrial activities, that, uh, you know, colonialism, that, uh, uh, you know, the exploitation of resources has urbanization, the, the sprawl of urbanization, that this may have also very negative environmental uh, conditions. Yet, they have proceeded, and they have proceeded with the means of science. So that's very clear. So knowledge has played an, a very important role, and I would say a role, and, and this is what I hope I have a bit contributed by this book also, to make it clear what central role knowledge has had in, in this entire development. So what we can learn from this is I think that, uh, you know, we cannot do without knowledge, but we must produce the right kind of knowledge. So uh, if uh, the progress, so to say, the so-called progress of the natural scientists were just an automatism proceeding blindly by the disciplines doing their work, you know, one nature, one science paper after another, one Nobel Prize after the other, if this would just be sort of a, you know, like a mecha autom automatized mechanism, then we wouldn't be sure that this mechanism produces the knowledge that we need to save ourselves, for instance, to transform our energy regime from a fossil-based energy regime into a renewable energy re regime. So one consequence is clear that we must to tweak, to steer this system more than we, than we might have thought. And the analysis of the book gives us some indication that it can be done and how it can be done. That it can be done follows from the fact that our knowledge is highly path-dependent. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the history didn't necessarily lead step-by-step step, uh, along the pathway that it actually did. There were always alternatives, and uh, there is some historical contingency in the way that our science and our knowledge is shaped. So that gives us the liberty to think that we might also, you know, tweak and change uh, the kind of pathway of knowledge for the future. So that it is possible, I think, is a historical insight that is coming from the analysis on, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, how abstraction works. Abstraction is related to the concrete tools uh, that, that we use in order to, uh, as a basis for our reflection. Now, uh, how should we tweak the system? I think we should tweak the systems towards addressing more the systemic, more the holistic aspects of systems. So previously, we could very much isolate the systems and kind of externalize many of the uh, uh, 
boundary conditions and, and ignore them. Now we can we have to focus on the entire planetary system and its dynamics. And that's a, a big challenge, but it's a, a manageable challenge, I think, because we have accumulated a lot of knowledge, for instance, about the Earth system. We have the web as a new infrastructure for producing knowledge, although it's mostly used uh, for other things, for PR and for polit politics and social uh, interactions, but it can be... Uh, it can be transformed, I think, into a very powerful tool for uh, for generating, communicating human knowledge. Should have been its primary function, but you know, I think we can still recuperate that. And we need to uh, face the interaction between the Earth system on the one hand and the human system, so to say, on the other hand. The interaction between the two is, I think, our our key challenge for the future. I call it uh, the human Earth system. And uh, the global society and the Earth system have a couple of dynamics, and we have to understand that dynamics. And we have great tools for that, but we just need to do it. And it's very urgent because some of the changes, as I said, changes of the energy, uh, energy regime, for instance, have to, have, have to happen very quickly in order to mitigate climate change in particular, which is the real uh, threat that is, uh, uh, that, is, that is upon us. And so I think, uh, you know, we have to produce what I call, also in the book, it's actually a central concept of the book that I haven't mentioned so far, uh, we, the economy of knowledge. We have to revise our economy of knowledge, and that means questioning some of the forms in which uh, uh, scientific achievements are being uh, uh, are being honored, are being uh, validated. Uh, it means... Uh, a greater emphasis on these systemic and holistic challenges while keeping freedom for basic science because this is not an engineering problem. It's not a problem for which we have all the tools ready. We just need to apply them. And it's also, it is a political problem for sure, but it's also a political problem of knowledge because we need to make sure that the knowledge we produce is openly accessible, that the pieces can be put together. That's a big, you know, uh, question for the knowledge economy of the future, and that the right emphasis is put. All of that is is possible. I'm very optimistic that uh, we can solve our problems, uh, and I think knowledge is a very good entry point to do it. I mean, I appreciate all the political efforts we do on an international level, on a uh, on a societal level, you know, to uh, to mitigate to. To, to struggle against climate change and environmental crises. But we shouldn't forget we do need new knowledge for it. And we don't get it for free. We don't get it automatically. We have to invest in it. We have to, we have to forge the new knowledge. So that's a call also, and the book is a call also, to the scientific community to focus on the, the, the grand challenges of humanity and uh, uh, and, and it has been done in the past. People have done in the past. I give some examples of that, that people have revised their economy of knowledge in a way to, to cope with the, with the actual and current problems. And we have to do it again. My example is, uh, you know, some of the things that happened in the early modern period where people really radically reorganized their, uh, their organization of knowledge, their institutional and intellectual organization where New academies were founded, where 
very ambitious projects were launched. And that's exactly what we need to do now. I mean, not founding new academies, <laughs> that's right, but, uh, you know, to pursue very ambitious projects in, uh, in an open and uh, dialogical form with society, because the time in which science could just sit in an ivory tower, it's definitely over. Science has become too critical, too fundamental to our survival. Professor Jürgen Wren, uh, we are discussing your book, uh, The Evolution of Knowledge, Rethinking Science for the Anthropocene. Uh, is there any topic or concept uh, that I have not covered uh, in our discussion that you think we should touch upon uh, before we close this uh, discussion? Actually, there is one, because after all, the book is called The Evolution of Knowledge. And I think it tries to make also a contribution to how to uh, conceptualize uh, uh, cultural evolution. Because cultural evolution is uh, for many just a metaphor to say, yeah, history of culture somehow. Some say progress, that's very optimistic. But I think if you look at the uh, large scale history of culture and you want to understand what uh, what its dynamics is or what its dynamics are, then you have to somehow compare it to uh, to natural history and uh, to the concepts uh, developed there, in particular the evolutionary concepts going back to Darwin. Now, some have done it by way of simply transferring concepts from biological evolution to cultural evolution. And that has actually... Uh, been very fruitful in, in some parts, but it's uh, really not doing entirely justice to the complexity of human societies, human culture. So I think this is another theoretical challenge to develop some conceptual theoretical approach, uh, not just mimicking Darwin, but you know at least learning from from Darwin and biological. Uh, evolutionary theory, how to conceptualize uh, cultural development. And I think here, my contribution is a little contribution in, in the sense that I have tried to show how knowledge could, inf how an analysis of knowledge could inform such an evolutionary approach to the history of human cultures. That is a point that has been somewhat neglected by cultural theorists by evolutionary theorists, and here I want to make a bridge, as I did also with other concepts, a bridge between an approach, a humanities approach to the history of culture and a more scientific, scientifically-minded approach to evolutionary theory. And uh, that is not just a conceptual issue, it's also a methodological issue, because if we really want to understand the dynamics, we need to rely on big data. We need to re rely on different empirical methods than historians have done so far. Uh, again, I give some uh, examples for that, but I think it's, it's a huge task that is waiting for us in the future. Professor Jürgen Wren, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Wasim, I have to thank you. You asked uh, the hardest question that one could imagine. Uh, I tried to do my very best. 
uh, and for those who are not satisfied with my answers, I can only recommend uh, to read my book. Uh, and those who were happy with my answers, of course, they should also read my book because there's much more in it than we could discuss. Thank you very, very much for your interest and for your stimulating uh, conversation. Thank you very much and uh, goodbye. Goodbye.